Thank you for listening to the 930 Sunday Sermon Podcast from the Woodway Campus of Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about the church, please visit us at second.org. That's second.org. Many times we've addressed the fact that all of us are aware of that the United States of America is in a SOS posture as we look at the enemies within and without that would destroy every life in our land. If you haven't figured that out, wake up. When the enemies come with physical force, they've already been here with spiritual force. What's the answer? We have our military. Many of them are relatively poorly trained. Some of them are trained to excellence. And a few of them are way at the top of the training scale, and it is those elites who will lay down their life for the flag, for our constitution, our republic, and will lay down their life for you and for me, as did Jesus Christ in our salvation. We have today a man who is elite among the elites. We have a Navy SEAL, perhaps the highest trained person in military action, perhaps on the planet. His book is entitled Seal of God. And he is here today to share with us his story of how Christ came and even changed the life of one of our most talented, committed soldiers in the land. Listen to this introduction that's far better than any words I could speak. They say a single moment can change your life. Determined to be something more, he chose a mission, a mission which few choose and even fewer succeed. His mission was to become a U.S. Navy SEAL, one of the most elite military fighting forces in the world. He knew the mission would push him physically, mentally, and emotionally. But nothing could prepare him for what would happen next. He watched his Navy SEAL mentor brutally killed and dragged through the streets of Fallujah, just days before entering his official SEAL training. Training that is among the most difficult in the world, Through the memory of his friend and mentor, he not only survived, 
but thrived. Of the 173 trainees, he was one of 13 that earned the honor and responsibility of becoming a Navy SEAL. Wearing the Navy Trident, he proudly served the United States of America as a member of SEAL Teams 1 and 7 on numerous special operations across multiple deployments. He is a true embodiment of the SEAL Team motto, earn your trident every day. Former U.S. Navy SEAL, special news contributor on military affairs and best-selling author of Seal of God, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chad Williams. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's so good to be here with you all today. If you have your Bibles, wouldn't mind opening up to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 is a text I'll be reading from in just a moment. And then as you turn there to kind of familiarize you a little bit with what it was I was doing in the SEAL teams on the last deployment I was involved in. We were out in Iraq and given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there working with this group called the ISOF, it's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so we figured the best way to do that is to not only train them on base, but actually go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. And if you can imagine, a whole deployment was going by pretty good. Uh, we've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And we're coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And we weren't really certain at that point if the ISOF was ready for us to be passing that baton of responsibility off to them. So we decided, hey, for this final operation, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation? We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. And so they start from scratch, they hit the streets, they find a source that gives them some intel about a man that's an Iraqi policeman by day, wears that uniform, but at night back home, as it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And to kind of give you an idea of the type of character that makes a suicide vest, oftentimes these guys aren't very motivated to actually be the one to strap it on themselves. In fact, they have such a difficult time finding somebody to volunteer and take that position. In one instance, they couldn't find anybody. So what did they do? Well, they went and they found two mentally handicapped women, and they fashioned these vests onto them as they directed them into a marketplace, shoving them off, watching from a distance like cowards, setting it off, killing these women, and obviously so many more. So this kind of gives you an idea of the type of character that we're up against. But the ISOF, they've got this guy's number. They figured out where he lives. They're presenting to us this plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, grab this guy, extract, and it all looks pretty good. And then they had an odd request. They felt they got shot at more than we SEALs did. They think they figured out why. And so what they present is, it's the color of your uniforms. We're like, really? The color of our uniforms? Not the way we shoot, move, communicate. Nothing to do with tactics. You guys think it comes down to a mere color of a uniform. And you can see on their faces, convinced. And so the request was, would we be willing to take off our American colored uniforms and put on their ISOF colored uniforms. We're like, all right, it's fine. 
Well, the funny thing is, is my dark complexion, start growing out a little facial hair, then get on one of these Iraqi Special Operation Force uniforms. I'm walking over to the Humvee. I'm about to get into the turret, and I got my guys on my team looking at me kind of funny smirking. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, hey, Williams, you're starting to blend in with these guys around here. <laughs> I certainly was. Kind of embracing the moment as I'm standing up in the Humvee, that section, the tour, I got a weapon there in front of me, and the weapon on this particular night is the 50 caliber machine gun. And for those of you in the room that might not know, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I got my night vision goggles on. I'm looking through my green little world as I'm going over the mental inventory, thinking about all the things I know about this night firing off in my mind. Weapon, headspace, and time ready to go. I know where this guy lives, the plan, how we're going to approach, get in, grab him, extract. And one unique thing I know about this operation that makes it truly different than every other operation, I know this is it. This is the final operation, which also means I know just a matter of days from now, I'm going to be back in my hometown surfing in the ocean. But here's what none of us really knew about that night, was that we were actually being set up the entire time. To get thrown into what I could say was the absolute worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment, as we find ourselves getting set up on an ambush, and now suddenly we are engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, and do what we do best in the SEAL teams that led to, I think, an obvious conclusion. I'm standing alive before you on the platform this morning. But it is also worth remembering that it doesn't always work out that way. We need to remember that our freedoms are not free. And if you think about it, what are they paid for in? They're paid for in the currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. And there's spiritual truth and application to that as well because when you take into consideration our eternal freedom, that wasn't free, paid for in the currency of the Savior's blood at the cross. And so more on how that ambush played out, if time allows, but I do want to get into God's word here and then share with you that road that led up to the ambush on that night. Second Kings chapter 5, we're going to read a story about a soldier by the name of Naaman, and I think you'll quickly see that Naaman could have been a Navy SEAL had there been SEALs during his time. Starting in verse 1, it goes like this. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, if only the, my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus is the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria says, go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed, and he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Quick translation, he's bringing along the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver, and apparel. Jump ahead to verse 9. We find Naaman in route. Keep in mind, this is enemy-occupied territory, about a 150-mile trip with horses and chariots. Verse 9, then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me, stand, call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. 
Are not the Abana and the Farpar and the rivers of Damascus far better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near him and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Relevance of this passage coming up shortly, uh, but as I alluded to a little bit, this road to becoming a seal. For me, fresh out of high school, attending a local community college, I can just say that that saying is very true, that if you aim at nothing, you will hit it. Unfortunately, that was the aim at that time. I find myself failing class, my peers passing me by, and I'm thinking, I don't want to turn out this way. I want to do something meaningful, something great. And so I'm sitting in a school parking lot about to go take finals when I just make up my mind. I know what to do with my life. I'm going to go become a Navy SEAL. And so I was so set on that that I decided, well, if I'm going to be a frogman, I guess I don't need to go to school anymore. And so I strutted my truck up and took off and never took those big tests. I got to break the news to my dad, though. Bad news, good news as I present it. Bad news, I'm failing all these classes. But the good news, I'm waiting for that. He's like, what's the good news? It's all right, Dad, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> you can put yourself in his shoes. Here's your son that hasn't demonstrated the discipline it takes to make it through the local community college, but now he's informing you he's going to be a SEAL. And so he's trying to be that voice of reason. He's trying to let me know that you're signing up for something you have no idea what you're getting involved in. Uh, that if you quit SEAL training, it's not like you could just be done. You know, if for some reason you find out this isn't for you or you ring that bell, you're still going to be in the military and you're probably going to pick up a job like chimping paint off some boat off the coast of Japan. Well, those words kind of stuck with me. And for whatever reason, that was probably one of the most motivational speeches a guy like me could have received at that time. And so I storm off and I'm preparing. Days are going by. He invites me into his room. He says, you want to do this? Yeah, Dad, I want to do this. He goes, great, I set up a workout for you with a Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. I'll never forget as I look at this screen thinking, my dad doesn't know any Navy SEALs. I'm panning over, and all it says is, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? <laughs> play? Like, dad, you met some guy on the internet who wants to meet with me in a beach parking lot, and he says he wants to play, and you're arranging this meeting right now. Oh, he's a SEAL, son, I'm trying to tell him you can't trust everything someone tells you on the internet. He's a SEAL. Well, as it turns out, there's more of a conversation that took place on a phone prior to that email that I didn't know about. I found out about this later, but I'll give it to you up front. On the phone, my dad's talking to this man saying, look, my son wants to be a Navy SEAL, but here's the deal. He has no idea what he's signing up for. He doesn't know what he's getting involved in, and so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to do me a really big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son and what I'm asking you to do, what I need you to do, is I need you to just crush him. Well, he thought about it for a while, and that was his response in the email. Can Chad come out and play tomorrow? Off I go. It's Oceanside, California, meeting up with a Navy SEAL in a beach parking lot. He spots me. Suddenly, I'm Bubba from this point forward. Bubba, get on over here. Sends me off on a run out into the wetlands, says he's going to catch up. Well, I'm looking back during this run, not seeing this guy. And as I'm running more, still not looking back and seeing him, I get this idea in my head. Maybe I'm too fast for the Navy SEAL. And I look over my shoulder again, like a scene at a Terminator 2, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where that bad guy can morph into knife hands. 
That's the Navy SEAL coming down this trail like a canine out of the back of a squad car. Closes in. And I never saw what was coming next as the beating began. I am getting impaled in the stomach by his fist as I'm going down to the ground. Wind knocked out of me, poof dirt up all around us, and he's jumping on top of me now. And I still have the sound of the threads of my shirt ripping and feeling spit rain down, hitting me in the face as this guy's just going nuts. And you gotta put yourself in my shoes for a moment here. The only intel I'm operating on is some guy my dad met off the internet. I'm thinking child predator, ah! <laughs> I'm trying to survive. And then I hear these words that changed it all. He says, you wanna be a Navy SEAL. You better stay three paces behind me. I realize this is it, and this is for real. And if I quit right now, something in me just told me, Chad, if you quit now, you'll forever be a quitter. The way you respond here is going to affect the trajectory of the rest of your life. And so I just vowed in my heart and my mind, I'd rather die than quit. He gets up, says three paces, takes off, and this beatdown goes on for miles down this trail. And I could just tell you all this, after having gone through SEAL training, which has the reputation for being the most difficult military training, hands down, I could look back and say, I never went through a more difficult singular workout, I should call it a beatdown session, than this encounter with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston. But there was something about that at the end when he's pacing back and forth, he looks like he wants to fight me. He's asking me, Do you, if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? I told him what came from the heart. Scott, I'll die before I quit. He's getting this big smile on his face. Great, you want to meet up again from the workout tomorrow? I've got to thinking, are we going to address the flashback this guy had on the trail? But then I thought, don't bring that up. You might trigger that event again. And so I just kind of give him the thumbs up. Well, I find out later over lunch, months later with these two, uh, that it was a big setup. Scott got on the phone after all that and told my dad, look, I know what you want me to do. I gave it a go, but I think your son might have what it takes to make it. I'd like to start meeting up with them. So from that point forward, I began to meet with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston, no longer a beat down, more of a building up. I moved on in life one day from being Bubba to suddenly I become Junior as he's taking me under his wing and mentoring me. And Scott's an extraordinary Navy SEAL. He holds all kinds of records. I'll just rattle them off for you. World champion panathlete, the fastest Navy SEAL in the SEAL training obstacle course, youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training, and the only man at the time to beat the beast on a TV program called Man vs. Beast, where he raced a chimpanzee through an obstacle course and pulled ahead of the monkey on the monkey bars. You can't make it up better. And so... You can imagine what it's like to get trained by him. And so he got me trained up, and so I sign up. I got this date, it's set, I'm shipping off for boot camp. He takes an opportunity, as he put it, to go overseas one last time. He leaves before I leave, and he's hopping on the phone with me. All right, Junior, I'm about to go do this thing. He's referring to going off to Iraq. And he says, I want you to know something, though, that I've never told anyone I've ever trained before. He says, I know you're gonna make it through SEAL training. And to this day, I don't have the words to describe what that meant to me. And so he's reminding me of the timeline. He's gone for two months. I'll do boot camp for two months. Then I'll start SEAL training in, in San Diego. And he says, I'll be there. That's where he lives. I'll be there. I'm going to see you make it through. So we get off the phone, say our goodbyes. He's gone. I got just a handful of days before now I go. Well, I'm up one day, and as I look at the television, who do I see on the TV screen? My mentor, Scott Helvenston, the man versus beast champion. It's just a smiling image of him. 
And I didn't understand why was he on TV. I thought he was supposed to be off in Iraq. And I'm just kind of waking up that morning, getting going, and I'm not really tuned into the words that are going on in the background. I just see this smiling picture. And then I see in the lower third of the screen Scott's birth date followed by a dash. And it says March 31st, 2004. And before I could process the obvious meaning of that that just wasn't comporting, it switches from the smiling image of Scott to suddenly I'm looking at graphic video footage of a vehicle engulfed in flames in Fallujah, Iraq, which turned out to be the very vehicle that he was in, along with these three other Americans as they've been ripped out of the vehicles, lifeless, and this angry Iraqi mob is gathering sticks and rods and doing everything they can on video to try and mutilate their bodies. And they go and they find rope and wrap it around their ankles, hook them up to vehicles, and they went dragging them through the streets of Fallujah stringing them upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge, setting their bodies on fire, and chanting over and over in Arabic, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. I think needless to say, I'll never have the words to describe what that moment and all the surrounding moments were like. It is one of those things that will change you. You don't go forward the same from there. And I think there is a little bit of a lesson worth kind of extracting here that comes out of our seal creed. It's how we deal with adversity. In the SEAL teams, we say that we are forged by adversity. And so adversity in your life will either be that thing that causes you to utterly fail or you will be forged by it. Where that forging process begins is very case by case. I found it thinking of those last words that my mentor shared with me. Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. It became all the much more important to make it through in honor and memory of him. I wrote his name on the inside of my hat going through training, and my thought was this, as I glanced up at the bill of my hat, whenever I was suffering and I needed to dig deep, my eyes would just jot up past my eyebrows, I would see his name, and my thought process was, you have to take me out of here in a body bag before I ever voluntarily ring a bell and quit on that name. It's not happening. And it didn't happen. I made it through training. Start with a class of 173 guys. I think the numbers speak for themselves. How difficult is it? Out of that 173, 13 of that original class number still standing there for graduation day. By far one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life. I remember walking out, looking up, thinking, Scott, we did this. As I'm getting the trident and the that says, hey, welcome to the brotherhood, your new identity. No longer a loser in a junior college parking lot. No, now you are a member of, I get put on SEAL Team 1. One of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life. But I gotta be honest with you all, it didn't take more than 24 hours before I felt the wind slowly coming out of that sail and everything seemed as though it slowly was going downhill, circling a drain from that point forward and I couldn't wrap my mind around why at the time. I mean, I just achieved the ultimate. And it was years later I heard a Christian philosopher say these words that nailed it. He says this, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate. And in the end, it lets him down. What he's referring to right there is sometimes what we refer to as the human condition, the grass always being greener on the other side. I appreciate even a man like Jim Carrey gets it, though he doesn't know the Lord. To paraphrase him, he says this, I wish that everybody could just become rich and famous and have everything they ever wanted so that they would know it's not the answer. Jesus put it best, though. He says, what's it profit a man? if he gains the whole world, but in the end, loses his soul. I guess you could say, in a sense, we all have our version of gaining the whole world. For me, becoming a Navy SEAL was my gaining the whole world, but the problem was my soul was not oriented correctly with my creator. And to look back 
To understand it really is that, look, if you have no peace with your creator, you'll never experience any genuine peace in your life while you're here on earth. I could look back and pinpoint that, but at the time, I didn't know. And so I really felt like I was lost. No true north. If anything to look forward to, get a little get back for Scott overseas. So I'm a member of SEAL Team 1, going through the process, getting ready to go deploy, chip on my shoulder. But then I'm confronted with these words as I listen to a message that came out of 2 Kings chapter 5. And with the time we have, I'd like to break down this text for you. Now remember this Naaman. He's had all this success in battle. He's got this entourage of men that highly respect him. He's called a mighty man of valor. Guy sounds like he could have been a SEAL had there been such a thing during his time. Look at the status that he has. Where is it getting him? It's getting him into the VIP meet and greet. He's rubbing shoulders with the king. He's this mighty man of valor, but he's a leper. How serious is leprosy? Let's just say it's a little worse than a case of eczema. Leprosy, specifically, Jesus looking back said nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. And so now circle back and picture Naaman's life like this if you would. Well, so much for all that success. So much for this outward man. Hey, what's really going on underneath that armor we don't see, Naaman? What's really going on underneath the clothing that doesn't quite meet the eye? Well, what's really going on is he's literally deteriorating and falling apart. Naaman is a dead man walking. Well, quickly I relate with that man right there. Wearing the armor of being a seal, like I got it together. When I felt as though I am that dead man walking. And in a room this size, by the law of averages, many of you are in that place as well. We're a certain person in front of the coworkers and the family members and the friends. Some of us have no idea what that person on our left or on our right is going through underneath it all. And so as I'm listening, no doubt about it, Naaman has tried everything he could do to fix himself of this problem. But remember, Jesus says nobody's ever been healed of leprosy. Who's the unsung hero in this story? A little girl. She's the evangelist. She has the boldness to speak up and say, oh, if only my master with the prophet was in Samaria for he would heal him of his leprosy. Naaman needs approval from his king. He gets the approval. Remember, he goes, and he's bringing all of this gold, silver apparel, prepared to pay this guy off, gets there to the door, and who comes to the door? It's not the prophet. It's simply a servant that relays a message and says, if you just go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, when you come up, your flesh will be restored to you. You shall be clean. What was Naaman's response? We don't need to wonder. All the venting is recorded right there in the scriptures. It says that Naaman became furious. I mean, could you imagine? He just came all this way with his men. Does this man of God have any idea who Naaman is, the mighty man of valor? I mean, he probably should have had the red carpet rolled out for him by now. It's almost proportional to the more important of a person you are, the farther they come out to greet you. I mean, we've seen in the movies, where is the town when a king comes to a city? Are they on their porch? No, the welcoming party begins outside the city gates. And so at the very least, this guy should have been waiting there for him, but instead he gets treated like a normal, like a casual, like some peasantry, and then gets told to go dip in this muddy Jordan River where all the sinners are in the water, and in his mind, he's too prideful for it. And so it's in this fury, it says he turned, he's leaving in a rage, and he's venting out loud saying exactly what his expectations were. Starting off with what? Starting off with, I expected this guy to come out of his place. He was expecting some special effects. He thought the fireworks were going to happen. 
There's gonna be fog machines and laser beams. He said, I expect him to come out of his place. He expects him to be waving his hand over the place, calling in the name of the Lord his God, and then just suddenly wipe the leprosy away. But instead, he gets treated like this normal. And so he's saying, why would I go dip myself in that water? Don't I have cleaner waters where I'm from in Damascus? Surely he does. So he's leaving. He's going in this rage. What happens to Naaman if he continues in this direction? Remember, it's terminal. He's a dead man walking. Well, here's the good news is that Naaman's surrounded by some good men that care about him. And I'm sure they don't know exactly how this works, but they do know this much. We need to get our Naaman back over there in front of that God of Israel, step back and let the God of Israel do his thing. And don't we need to be those people in the lives of others? We just need to invite them sometimes to get them in front of the message about the God of Israel. And then you could step back and let God do his thing. And so they're trying to reason with Naaman. Eventually, they persuade Naaman to do it. But I don't think it was their words. God could speak through a donkey if he wants to. But the words that they shared, Naaman, come on, if you know if this guy gave you some big, great thing to do, you would have done it. I mean, if it was some CrossFit exercise or Olympic lifting, Naaman would be like, show me where to start. But because it's just a simple thing, just go wash and be clean, what did it seem like to him? A foolish thing. Ooh, don't miss that. That's exactly what it says about the preaching of the cross in the New Testament, that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to who? Those that are perishing. No doubt about it, Naaman is in a state of perishing, but something these guys say, God uses it, gets through. And I think that Naaman really gets it now. As he makes this change of direction, there's a whole lot more going on than a mere physical change of direction. There is a spiritual change that is happening. Naaman understands, yes, Naaman, it is not the water that's going to fix you. Yes, Naaman, that water is filthy in comparison to what you have back home. It's not about the water, Naaman. It's about the God of Israel. That if you humble yourself, he will do the hard part. He will be faithful. He will do the heavy lifting. And so as Naaman is making this 180, it's as though he's making the walk he always needed to make. The walk we all need to make. He's making a walk to his own funeral. He's humbling himself. That armor that would need to go, he's peeling away what always needed to go. The pride, the ego. That leprosy was not the problem. That was a surfacey symptom of a much deeper issue of pride that seems to impregnate every sin that we all commit. Dipping in an act of faith, believing. Seven times goes down, seventh time comes up. And the Hebrew, the picture is this, brand new skin like that of a baby. Wow. As I listened to that, I was blown away. I felt as though I was watching a movie. I was totally sucked in. I get to live vicariously for a character, a character for a little bit. But like so many movies out there, I see the end coming, and now the credits are going to roll, the lights are going to come back on, and it's no longer time to take a little break, a little reprieve from what I got going on in life. It's time to go walk in my own shoes again. No, nope. I want to make a point that God doesn't roll the credits right there. And just as he provided a way out for Naaman, he has provided a salvation for you and I as well. And first, we have to understand our condition. So just as Naaman was this outward man, he had this persona on the outside, when in reality, underneath it all, he had a disease that was destroying him and leads to death. Again, who are you? Who am I on the outside, in front of the others, when in reality, underneath it all, apart from God, we all have, you could say, a disease. Call it S-I-N positive. And the wages of sin is death. And just as Naaman couldn't do anything to wash the leprosy off of himself, hey, is there anything you and I could do to wash our own sin off of ourselves? No. But God provided a way. And it's not dipping into the Jordan. You could say God dipped, 
his son down into the world on a holy rescue mission. And this Jesus came with purpose. Here was his mission, it's declared in Matthew 121, to save his people from their sin. And so this Jesus lives a holy, harmless, perfect life. If you haven't caught it yet, that leprosy in the Old Testament is a picture of our sin. Spiritually speaking, apart from God, you and I are all spiritual lepers. We are all imagined, just spotted and blotted and blemished in it, struck through. But Jesus is holy and pure without blemish. And he went to the cross. And why did he go to the cross? We know the mission to save his people from their sin. So here's a picture to trade skin with you and I, to take our leprosy, our sin, our shame upon himself, paid the penalty of that sin in full at the cross so that we could be switched and lavished with God's grace and mercy as though we live the holy, harmless, perfect, righteous life of Jesus. And then he rises again from the grave and that is important because it shows that he is no blasphemer as they accused him. No, this is God's authentication that this truly is my son and you need to listen to his teachings. Teachings like I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one else can save you. Nobody's even offering to save you. And just like Naaman, we need to do what? You need to have that sort of humbling of self. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, you want this salvation that he offers, to be cleansed of your sin, to have a place in eternity in heaven, to have a lane to be in while you're here on earth now where God's hand is upon you. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, what must they do? They must deny self. You gotta do the naming thing. Humble yourself. And you put your faith and your trust in who? Jesus as savior to do what? to do what he says he will do, save you from your sin. He does the heavy lifting. The split second any man or woman does that, it's not my word on it, it's God's word on it. He says, here, remember your sin no more. Here, remove it as far away as the east is from the west. Remember that leprosy in the Old Testament? Wiped away, blotted out. The New Testament, repent and be changed that your sins may be blotted out, that time's refreshing may come. March 14, 2007, I heard the gospel message from the 2 Kings chapter five passage. And boy, is Jesus right when he says that if you knew the scriptures, you would know that they testify of me because the gospel is all over this Old Testament story. And so sure enough, I responded by repenting of sin and putting my faith and trust in him. And I'll just say the scriptures are true. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, behold, all things become new. I immediately apprehended that, I'm, I'm, I've been forgiven. I'm forgiven of my sin. I have a place in eternity, I, I'm right with my creator, I have peace with my creator, I have peace in my life I never experienced. And in the meantime, while I'm still here on earth, I got a mission to be on, it is to know God like I do and to go out there and make him known. And the way I looked at it now is being a seal before where God wasn't involved, this narcissistic, it was about me, and that's like decaf, it just doesn't ever deliver for you anything. <laughs> but we could change that, we could flip around what we do, as the scriptures say in Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now that I was a seal for Christ, where it left me hungry and thirsty for more, never satisfied, now I have Jesus who says, you drink of my living water, you never thirst again. I could actually find fulfillment in being a seal. Fast forward that final op, I wish I had time to hit the details, let me cut to the chase. I came home alive. I think we need to focus in on this though. It doesn't always work out that way. I wanna highlight a couple names very briefly. 
One would be Michael Monsoor, who was a U.S. Navy SEAL. While he was providing cover for others out there on the road, a hand grenade got thrown onto a roof, bounced off his chest, falls to the dark. He has an exit just a step away, but there's other SEALs on that roof that don't have time. He yells grenade to them so they could take cover as he jumped over it, covered it, and absorbed it. He took the blast, all that shrapnel, and he died. But because of what he did, all of the others on the roof, they all lived. Greater love is known than this one that lays on his life for his friends. Is that not a picture of what Jesus has done? If he could help you, or Michael Monsoor, or Scott Helvinson, or so many others that have gone before us, if you could look at the cross through their lens, you'd get an even greater understanding of the cross. And the greatest of all, when Jesus went to the cross, you could say he absorbed the blast. Not of a hand grenade. He absorbed the wrath of our sin upon himself. Jesus could have saved himself. He was never in trouble. Michael Monsoor could have saved himself, never in trouble. It was these guys caught in the crosshairs of it. It was always us caught in the crosshairs of God's judgment, our sin. But Jesus covered our sin that we might live forever with him in eternity. And as my friend Scott killed and hung from that bridge, ultimately for freedom's sake, Never forget that Jesus, he was killed and he was hung, wasn't he? From the cross of Calvary, so that we could be set free from the eternal consequences of our own sin. And so greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends. You could see it in men like Mike Monsoor and Scott Helvinston, and the greatest of all, look to the cross. That's the proper perspective of that King of Kings, that Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says, for he, speaking of the Father, made him Jesus who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. Why a word like might? Because at the end of the day, it's not some default position, not everybody just will. What do you gotta do? I guess what you need to do is what we could call this morning the naming thing to do. Humble yourself before him, fling yourself upon his mercy, put your trust in him, and he will do the heavy lifting. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful for this time thankful for this gathering, thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy, realizing that they are not free. And even as we speak now, there are those being a living sacrifice, standing in the gap, and we certainly remember those that have gone before us and paid the ultimate price, and now we focus our attention on your son, Jesus. Well, everyone's heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I just ask, if you find yourself here this morning realizing that this speaks to you and you have been playing the part of Naaman, you are this other man, other woman on the outside, in front of the others, when in reality, underneath it all, there's some other issues. Who are you? Who are you really? God knows who that person is, and you do too. And the good news is he doesn't want to point a finger at you. He doesn't want to rub your nose in any shame. He steps in to set you free. And so I just ask, if you find yourself here this morning realizing that you need to turn as Naaman turned, and you want to put your faith and trust in that Jesus. I pray that you would commit yourself to that. Remember, Naaman left one thing behind in that water in Israel he did not go back home with. He left the leprosy behind. What have you walked into this room, into this building with, that you could leave behind? It's in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Sermon Podcast from the Woodway Campus of Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about the church, please visit us at second.org. That's second.org.